Hi, I'm Ruby Warrington, and this is the first installment of a special podcast series I've created based on research interviews for my forthcoming book, Women Without Kids. If you listen to the trailer for this series, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes to give you some more background, you'll have heard me mention that one of my goals with the book is to unite the ones who can't have kids and the ones who don't want kids which as I began working on the project, I quickly realized was quite an ambitious undertaking. Not being able to become a mother when it is something that you want with all of your being is a very different emotional path to knowing that you do not want to be a mother and dealing with the stigma and the judgment that can come with this. But still, I believe that all women without kids, however we find ourselves here, share common experiences of being othered, of feeling or being told that we are missing out, of fearing growing older without younger people around to look after us, and of being seen as somehow defective. In this episode, you'll hear me talking with Jodie Day, who is the founder of Gateway Women, an organization for the involuntarily childless. Jodie has been creating community for women without kids for over a decade, and I was keen to get her insights on this subject and to learn whether she thinks it's possible to transcend what I call the mummy binary. That is the false divide that exists between mothers and non-mums, or what Jodie calls nomos of all orientations. This is my conversation with Jodie Day. Jodie, welcome. Thanks for joining me. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Ruby. It's really, really great to meet you. I've been diving deeply into your work over the past few weeks, um, which I was first introduced to just to give a bit of background as to why I really wanted to talk to you today and about this subject matter in particular. Um, A friend, another writer friend, uh, when I was in the process of pitching this book, mentioned your work and said, I must check it out. And so I immediately went to check out and almost immediately thought, oh, this isn't for me. This is for childless women, women, mm-hmm. and I don't identify as childless. Nothing feels like it is missing from my life. Mine is a different path of disenfranchisement, which we will mm-hmm. <laughs> get into. Um, and I think at the time, I don't know if it's still there, but on the front page of your website, there was something that sort of said, you know, ours is a private grief that has lived in public, which is such a poignant observation. Mm-hmm. But again, I just couldn't relate to it. So I just mm-hmm. sort of turned away and thought, well, that's not my tribe. Um, And then the second incident was I wrote a piece from an essay for my newsletter about my mixed feelings about Mother's Day, which are largely, to summarize, wrapped up in the fact that Mother's Day presents such a sentimentalized ideal of motherhood, Mm. as I think very few of us children can relate to, let alone women who are mothers. And it just seems very... um, contradictory to lots of women's experience to the point of being insulting actually and somebody responded to my newsletter saying oh just just another privileged child-free woman you have no idea what it's like to be somebody who wants to have children and can't and here you are slamming motherhood and it wasn't what I was saying at all Mm -hmm. but she was obviously in a lot of pain around her situation and sort of felt attacked in some way Mm-hmm. And it really began to dawn on me, and this is something that I've come up against throughout my writing process, because I'm trying to speak to all women without kids. Yeah. And even on the behest of my publisher, women who are mums, but who I don't identify with the role of mother, who want to maintain an identity outside of their role of mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been challenging, very challenging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I really feel like this is a very um, potent area of inquiry. Um, And I'm, yes, because obviously when I started investigating your work more deeply, read some of your book, sort of looked at some of your blog posts, of course, so many of the things that you talk about Mm. are absolutely relevant to my experience. Um, And it's not just about the terminology, although terminology is part of it, but there's I suppose what I'd really love to talk to you about today is where these divides come from, the divide between mums and non-mums, what I'd be calling the mummy binary, (laughs) and then also the divides between the can't have kids and the won't have Mm. kids. So maybe we can just dive in there. You have, you know, 10 years of working closely Mm. with women 
all along the spectrum, the baby, baby spectrum, I yeah. suppose. And so I would love to hear first from you where these divides come from, like what, what's the root of them? The root is one word, pronatalism. Mm -hmm. That is the root of all of it. Pronatalism is the ideology, which is a subset of patriarchy, which says that parents are more important than non-parents. People who have children are more important than people who don't have children. Women with children are more important than women without children. And that motherhood and wanting to be a mother, whether you succeed in being a mother or not, is the most natural thing for a woman. It all comes from, from this. And this is a, it's a belief. I mean, when I sort of say it's an ideology, you can see some people's eyes glaze over like, oh, no, I'm not, I didn't sign up for that. And it's like, you know, what is ideology? Ideology is just a name for the belief system that structures our beliefs about how the world is. Mm. You know, if you ask a fish, how's the water? The fish will say, what's water? This is a talking fish, of course. <laughs> but it's, you know, it is, it is the medium we swim in mm. that structures our belief systems. But pronatalism is not gravity. It mm. is a belief system and it can be changed and it can be challenged. So it's part of sexism. It's part of patriarchy. And it is at its core, it is a judgment of value. And you only have to see it in action to see the statement as a mother. As a mother is a valorizing statement that says that this woman's opinion about whatever comes after it might have nothing to do with child rearing is important. No one says as a childless woman and then expects people to think that what she has to come, what's coming next is more important. Pronatalism functions in the same way as all other valorizing othering systems like racism, sexism, ableism. It's a way of creating a pecking order and who's in and who's out. And its role is to divide. Mm. And it works perfectly. And so it's obvious to see how that manifests in the mummy binary of the non-mums, mm. the, the mums and the non-mums. The mums are perceived in pronatalist ideology as superior to non-mums. Yeah. However, I feel that some mums feel that actually non-mums have benefits that they don't, which go on it. And the, 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 the sort of thankless child-rearing labour, mm. that unpaid child-rearing labour that they do, is actually unacknowledged often, apart mm. from with very palliative sort of celebrations like Mother's Day. Have some cupcakes mm. for all of those years of yourself you gave to raising a child for free. <laughs> um, but it's harder to see how that manifests between the can't have kids and won't have kids. Do you have some thoughts about that? Yes. I mean, also the can't have kids and the won't have kids is is a little bit simplistic as well, mm. because um, of the women who reach midlife without having had children, you know, between six and 10% in the most recent meta-analysis are child-free by choice. It's a much smaller percentage than people realize. About 10% are childless due to infertility or other medical issues. And 80% are childless by circumstance, with the biggest circumstance being, the two biggest ones probably being not having a willing or suitable partner during your fertile years, and also complications to do with chronic illnesses and increasingly structural issues in society that are making it very difficult to have children. Now, so there are an awful lot of women who, they would have liked to have had children, but it didn't work out. Mm. It's not that they couldn't have them. Mm. So that's, you know, that's that once again, there's kind of, there's a gray area there. And the childless by circumstance is not in the public narrative yet, even though it is the largest reason Mm. It's like you tried to have children and you couldn't have them. Okay, well, we understand that. Oh, poor childless woman. Child-free women, you didn't want kids and you didn't have them. Wow, what an amazing life you must have. I envy you so much. Not that simple either, as, as, as we know. But childless by circumstance is still very much in the gray area. Mm. I think the, the issues are still, it's still pronatalism that's structuring a lot of this, which is the idea that because pronatalist tells us that wanting to have a child is the most natural feminine thing to do, therefore that the child-free woman, the woman who chooses not to be a parent, is in some way deviant. So there is this kind of othering, you know. When I was first coming to terms with my childlessness, I was really scared that people would think I was child-free. 
I wanted to make it perfectly clear that I wasn't. When they'd say, do you have children? I'd say, unfortunately not. Because what I didn't want them to think, I didn't want them to think that I was one of those heartless bitches that didn't want kids. Waving, <laughs> I'm waving on the camera here. Yeah. And it, it was, you know, it was a real internalized judgment that came from pronatalism. So there is this fear. Then as I started to explore the work of child-free writers, I started to realize that the thinking, the analysis, the progressiveness that I was hungry for in the childlessness world, which didn't exist, I kind of started that, was there in the work of child-free thinkers. Mm. So I started to realize, hang on, here are women, some of whom have known for many, many years, some of them since they were children, that they didn't want to be parents. They've had a long time to think about this. They've had a long time to develop their thinking, their position, their arguments. In a way, I found that there was so much for me to learn there. And also as I went deeper into kind of getting to know the child-free experience, I also began to realize that my idea of it, of kind of this, in a way, this carefree choice, which was what is how it's presented in the mainstream media and which I'd swallowed whole, was also not true. That there were many, many shades of ways to become child-free. And I began to realize that childless and child-free are much more on a continuum than being these two, you know, these, these dichotomy buckets, mm -hmm. as you say, didn't want, couldn't have. Mm -hmm. Because in a way, I was child-free when I was young. You know, I was pretty sure I didn't want to have children. You know, when I, when I got pregnant at 20, I was terrified, you know, and I had an abortion. I was terrified of becoming a mother. I thought it would ruin my life. Then later I was married and I was trying to have children and I had unexplained infertility. And then after my marriage, I was desperate to meet someone and do IVF and I couldn't meet someone, so I was childless by circumstance. So in a way, I've gone through them all. But what's really interesting is that now a decade into my recovery from childlessness, and I use that recovery more in a sort of a 12-step way, in that I will always be childless. Mm. It's always going to be something that's part of my identity that I have to work with. It's not going to disappear. That in many ways, I feel in my mind and in my heart quite child-free because I've come through the grieving process. I've come through the identity shift. I no longer over-identify with, you know, with being childless. I mean, a decade ago, it was the most important thing you needed to know about me. Hello, my name is Jodie and I'm childless. And I didn't choose it, by the way. Now, childlessness is integrated into who I am. Mm. So it's kind of part of the context of me. You know, I'm Jodie, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer, I'm a social entrepreneur, I'm a, you know, I have a dog, I have a partner, I live in Ireland and I'm childless. You know, I'm a daughter, I'm a friend, I'm a lover, I'm many things. One of which is my childlessness. Mm. But I think when you're in that state where it is the most important thing about you, to meet a woman who is celebrating the identity that you are grieving is just such a slap in the face. It is so hard to understand. And I see it the other way around as well with, you know, I've met, sometimes I've been at, at public talks and there have been child-free women in the audience who've stood up and said, I don't know what's wrong with all you people. You know, it's wonderful, you know, not having kids. Why are you all so miserable about it? You know, and you just think, okay, you know. And sometimes those voices can be the loudest ones. Mm. But they do not represent all child-free people. And I, I, so I guess I went under the covers of what it means to be child-free. I loved Megan Dorm's book of essays. That blew me away when I, when I read it because I also realized that actually some child-free people come to it after a sort of a tentative journey towards parenthood. It might involve miscarriages and abortions and wanting to be a parent and changing your mind and grief and misunderstandings and all of the human complexities that can be part of a journey to parenthood or, or childlessness. And I just began to really see how pronatalism was colouring and prejudging the child-free experience and making me see it as less valuable than the childless experience. But I kept making child-free women who thought exactly the opposite. So there was this kind of extraordinary dissonance. And the media doesn't help. 
Mm. I mean, that time, that time, big time piece about child freedom, you know, about, I don't know, it must be about five years ago now, illustrated with, you know, people on holiday, you know, a child free couple on holiday, this idea that child free equals, you know, freedom, complete freedom from all adult responsibility. Like, how did that happen? Why do you, maybe they do have white sofas and white dogs and lie on white beaches, but I bet an awful lot of them are just regular people like you and me trying to make the bills and do their jobs and deal with what it is to be a human in this complicated world. Absolutely. So much of what you've, thank you so much for just kind of like Mm. unpacking and unpicking all of that. It's just completely fascinating. Um, some, I think the reason I've never liked the term child-free and certainly don't identify as child-free by choice, although it has been my choice, although there are multiple choices that I've made along my life path that have led me to this point, is that it suggests carefree and my life feels like it has been anything but mm. carefree. And actually, when I've when I first started really researching this subject, I was very aware of that, what you talk about, that pro-natalist attitude, which affords so much, and maybe not in everybody's experience, but overall sympathy for women who have not, who have wanted to have children, who haven't been able to for whatever reason. Sympathy, it's it's sympathy, not empathy. Oh, yes. Poor childless woman. Exactly. But an element of, but she she tried her hard. She did her best. She tried her hardest. And this, um, this idea that, the child-free woman is, okay, so I'm just going to say it, but the original title that came through and it came into my consciousness immediately with the, the, the realization I wanted to write this book was selfish cunt, because that is how I perceived that society saw me, that I mm-hmm. it was being selfish with how I used my cunt <laughs> and that that, that, that was the, the overall perception. Mm-hmm. But what I realized when I really started diving into my deep why, why have I known since age five that I didn't want to be a mum? It's so much to do with my experience of being a child and of being mothered, which was imperfect in, in many ways, as are so many of our experiences of that. What's my earliest memories are of wanting to be a grown up because I couldn't wait to have my own life. And so when I think about there's this very sentimentalized idea under pronatalism that family is just kind of the source of our ultimate comfort, safety, security, support, interdependence, connection and love. That hasn't been my experience. And so when you talk about your grieving process, I think part of what I'm grieving in this writing process is not having had that, you know, not having had that experience of family that I wanted to replicate, you know. Um, So it just felt very... It felt, it felt, um, and it helped, so diving into that helped me to understand why I bristled at that term, child-free. And I just think it's really exciting to be having conversations like this, Mm -hmm. where actually acknowledging that beyond that binary thinking, there's every individual experience with its own pain, with its own baggage, with its own grief, with its own challenges, and with its own freedoms and, Mm -hmm. um, with its own, you know, levels of autonomy and, and choice. So, mm. yeah. Terminology is interesting because <laughs> child-free, I can absolutely understand how you would, because it's always like sort of freedom as in, wee's child-free, you know. It really sounds like, like carefree, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and childless is such a dreary word. And it's, you know, I mean, I when I was grieving my childlessness, my life felt less than it felt less than the life I would have had had I been a mother. It felt less than the life that my friends who'd become mothers were experiencing. It felt like a deficit. Um, It felt like a damaged identity. As I moved through my grief process, which is a process of identity transformation, and I I started to realize, I started to unpack a lot of the, the stereotypes and the judgments and the belief systems that were basically no longer supporting me. You know, what is, okay, there's the grief, but underneath the grief, what, what, what do I need to do? What attitudes do I need to change or explore to really understand the, the societal judgments I'm experiencing and push back against them? And now I, I, I don't feel my life is, is less than, you know, there is nothing missing from my life because I don't have children. I am living a different life to the one I would have had had I been able to have children. 
but it is not a lesser life. I am living a different, messy, imperfect human experience than I would have done if I'd been a mum, which would have been a different, messy, imperfect human experience. But I no longer accept that valoration uh, between, you know, Jodie who'd been a mum and Jodie who isn't a mum. It's like, well, they're different paths. They would have been different lives, but they're not, one is not more valuable than the other. Mm -hmm. So I don't really like the term childless. But I, out of, in a way, I suppose, loyalty and respect, both to my the childless community that I sort of represent and the child-free community that I deeply respect came through a different path, I still use the word. I mean, I created a word, nomos, which has been used quite a lot, sometimes to describe women who, who've chosen not to be mums or sometimes women who haven't, because I wanted a word that just basically means not mother, mm. but which doesn't have the word not or less in. And I decided Nomo sounded like a kind of groovy downtown district in New York. Oh, Nomo's. <laughs> and the terminology is really important, but we need the terminology. I mean, we no longer call women who vote suffragettes because it's now normal for women to vote in many countries. Mm. When it is no longer the defining feature of a woman's life, whether she is or isn't a mother, we will no longer need these terms. But at the mm. moment, it's still something we're working through. And rather like the race conversation and the sexism conversation, the distinction is important because they come with different experiences. But what you're trying to do to speak across those experiences, that is the work we need to be doing. Mm. Mm. I'm very curious. You And I listened to another podcast where you mm. described... Um, you know your early childhood you also you know your your mum you were an unplanned pregnancy and you had a, a challenging experience of being mothered and being a child yourself yes. and likewise like like me I mean just like you, you know you didn't grow up um wanting to be a mum necessarily mm. what was it that changed your mind is if it's all right for me to ask that yes I'm, I'm always just very curious about these these sort of the transitions and the, the mm -hmm. what, what causes us to kind of change and course correct during our life path. Yes, you're very welcome. I was, so when I got married, I was 26. I had told my then husband that I didn't think I wanted to have children. And he was like, okay. And then, you know, I was 29 and my idea of what family could be had changed. I married into a big, chaotic, loving family my then husband was one of six. I got on very closely with his parents. I was very welcomed and accepted into the family. So I kind of went from not really having a family and the family I had had being very tricky to sort of being part of a big, quite traditional family. And gradually I began to realize that having children didn't mean having my childhood, that there was an opportunity to do something differently. Mm. And that was when I started to sort of soften to the idea. And also I realized that I kind of the idea of having a child who would be a product of my then husband's genes and my own, a little one of him or me, started to seem very appealing. And unconsciously, because I hadn't started my kind of healing journey, I, I think I probably unconsciously saw an opportunity perhaps to redo my own childhood through being a mum that perhaps mm -hmm. I could give to my children what I had longed for. Um, and that was something I had to grieve when I was grieving my childlessness, when you were talking about that's coming up for you writing this book, realizing that I, it probably you probably don't get a do-over. That's a bit of a fantasy. But I think also, you know, grieving the mothering and the family that we didn't get and that we can never go back and do over. I think it's a deep maturation or healing process, and it's one that a lot of childless women face. Mm, absolutely. That okay. makes so much sense to me. I've been with my husband, best friend, for over 23 years, and he likewise has never wanted to have children. And the, the conversation about how men are not conditioned for fatherhood is a whole other one. <laughs> um, mm. So maybe we won't go there today. But he similarly, you know, his family are not, there's not a big sense of a big happy family like my family. Everyone's sort of off on their own sort of separate satellite missions. And so I never, I didn't have that. But I wonder actually, had I mm. experienced what you did, what you just described, would I have changed my mind? Quite possibly. 
actually. Mm. You talk, I love the way you talk about grieving as a process of identity transformation. And I've also heard you talk about the specific grief of childlessness as being disenfranchised grief. Could you just unpack what you mean by both of those things? So the transformational process and the disenfranchised grief. Absolutely. Well, grief is a process of identity transformation, probably as profound as Probably the last time we changed this much was adolescence. Everything that we structure our identity on has been irrevocably lost. So the, you know, the the object that is a core part of our identity, whatever it might be, often it's a, you know, in a bereavement, it's a particular person. Uh, With childlessness, you're not just grieving the opportunity to be a mother, but all of the things that come with it all of the opportunities right across the life course, including being a grandmother, being um, a parent when your siblings are parents, having friends, being part of the accepted community of mothers, having the valorized identity of motherhood. There are so many things that come with motherhood and also the unconscious ones like the desire to heal our own wounds by being a different kind of mother to our children. There is so much kind of collateral loss that you have to... um, let go of and as you let go of each of these pieces of the identity of the longed for identity of motherhood really a void opens up in you and it's a process of identity transformation because just like in adolescence we don't really know what kind of adult we're going to be we're in the dark about it we're moving towards a destination and we actually don't know what the destination is called being grown up but we don't really know how we will be grown up And with grief, we don't really know who we will be when we reintegrate around this loss. I I mean, I talk about a plan B in my work and people often think it's a thing. You know, it's a new job. It's a new way of being. I said, no, this is the person that emerges from the grief. And people, you know, people I love to talk about butterflies and stuff coming out of transformations. And I go, well, what about the caterpillar? You know, it was just moving along one day when suddenly it was entombed in a case and its whole body turned to mush and it's dark and its body melted. Do you know what I mean? Yes. That's grief. And it has no idea what's going on or it doesn't know it's going to be a butterfly. It just knows that its whole life has literally turned to shit and it's in the dark and it doesn't know when it's going to be over. That's grief. That's identity transformation. So gradually we, we are never the same. Grief is a form of love. It is the shadow side of love. And just as when we love, even if that relationship doesn't work out, we are never the same person that we were after that love. It has changed us and grief changes us. And we are never this. We are a new version of ourselves with new tender spots and new strong spots. I'm a very, you know, I'm kind of Jodie, I mean, I say Jodie 2.0. I've, I've been through so many transformations in life. I've been, <laughs> you too. Um, but, you know, I'm so much braver. You know, I'm so much, I mean, I'm outspoken. I have this public role and it's not a natural thing for my personality type. You and I share a personality type, but it's because I care about this subject so much that I put myself in the mm-hmm. public eye and I do all this stuff. But otherwise, I, I, I wouldn't. But it's that, yeah, we, we become a new version of ourselves. So that's the transformational piece. Mm-hmm. And that's common to all grief. Um, it's a very profoundly changing human experience. And it's also the engine of change. I think one of the reasons our society gets stuck is because it's so focused on the bright, shiny 30 steps to a new blah, blah change. But actually, in order to change anything, even a desired change, even a good change, we have to let go of something. And the emotion that enables us to let go of anything is grief. Mm. We need to get a lot smarter about what's going on with grief because grief isn't an event. It's a skill. And when we learn how to work with our skill, just like we can become more better at loving, we can become better at grieving. And we can get out of our own way and we can support ourselves and others. And it's never an easy process, but we often don't have to make it as hard as it is. Or as feared, as fearful. Mm. And that leads into disenfranchisement. 
So what, what is disenfranchised grief? It's a terrible mouthful. <laughs> and really, it means grief that's not allowed. It's not allowed. You're not allowed to feel it. You're not allowed to experience it. You're not allowed to talk about it. It's not meant to be happening. So it's basically, if you say, you know, grieving your childlessness, someone might say, but you can't grieve something you've never had. I, you're not feeling what you're feeling. Mm. It's not allowed. There are many forms of different franchise grief. Uh, another one I was just talking about it earlier today is actually um, what's called secondary infertility. So having a child and wanting to have another child and that not being possible. Now, when you try to talk about that, if you try to talk about it to uh, someone who's childless, they won't see that you're grieving. They'll say, well, you've got a child. You know, and if you try to talk about it to people who are parents, they'll say, well, have you tried this and have you tried that? But it's very difficult for the, the person who's experiencing that grief to get anyone to actually just sit with them in that space and offer empathy. Gosh, that must be hard some days. Mm. You know, how are you doing with that? Mm. No, it's, it's all either denial or solutions. So there are many forms of disenfranchised grief. I mean, a dream that you dearly, dearly wanted to come true and it didn't come true, you know? Yeah. When you, you realise that that has gone totally, you know, that's a form of disenfranchised grief. Even kind of grieving, people often don't realise that if you are a, an immigrant to a new culture, you know, and, and you're really excited about that, you are still grieving what you've lost by no longer being in your home culture. So there's lots of ways we can experience it. And one of the difficult things about it is that you're not allowed to talk about it. Mm. So that means it's very hard to find support. And grief is a social emotion. It's a form of love. It exists in connection. And I see disenfranchised grief actually as a form almost of like unrequited grief, a grief that's not, not allowed to be in relationship and it does its healing work in relationship, in connection. It does it with empathy. You, you just need to look into the eyes or through the words, online works as well, of someone who completely gets what you're going through and doesn't judge you for it and maybe shares something of their own experience to, to start to get the, you know, the, the healing, the magical healing of grief. Because grief is basically healing. It's a form of love. It's a form of healing. It's, I think it's one of the highest highest form of human emotion it's just drives me crazy that it's so grief itself is disenfranchised in our culture mm. and i sort of feel like we're moving through a time with the pandemic with the social justice uprising that we've seen 2020 feels like the year that grief kind of brought us to our knees and was like took us by the shoulders and just said no you can't you're not getting out of this jail free <laughs> in a way and although it's not a jail obviously grief when we like as you're describing it when we're able to leave into it with support with tools with community it can be yeah it can it can be transformational and actually help us birth a new self almost it's the engine of change so yes we, yeah. we lean into it and extraordinary things can happen yeah um I'm, i'd love if you could speak a bit to what are the what are the ways that women across the spectrum of and I'll just use the term childlessness nomos what are the ways that nomos can sort of band together support each other empathize with each other and begin to heal some of these divides um, in your experience of maybe working mm. with groups and individuals mm. how have you seen that that sort of healing take place in this among this sort of wider community I'd say that's still at its very, very early stages um, in that, first of all, it's almost as if the community of childless women, that's women who are childless, not by choice, in themselves need to arrive at a level of healing and also consciousness raising. Because there's the grief part, there's the personal grief journey, but there's also the consciousness raising journey of understanding that our situation as women without children exists in a social context. And if you're prepared to do the work to unpack your belief system, you're much more likely then to be able to kind of communicate across that divide. I mean, I have women writing to me saying, you know, I heard you on this podcast. It's amazing. You seem to be really empathic towards mothers or something like that, you know, and I'm, I'm wondering, how did you get to that? 
And it's, it is through the work of recognizing where the difference, where the judgment exists in me mm. against myself. And then I project that onto others. It's been the work of consciousness raising, of going, okay, well, wh where are my blind spots around this? Where are my triggers? And the triggers and the bingos, which we call them, you know, when people say these, these, these trite things to us, whether we're childless or child-free, um, about being a selfish cunt, perhaps, <laughs> um, is um, even if they don't say it out loud, mm -hmm. you know, is eh, when we have to, when we've done the work to understand that hook in ourselves. Because if it hooks us, then there's some judgment there we're still feeling towards ourselves, if it's still a hot point. So anyway, all of those things that annoy us that people say about us are actually opportunities for us to lean in to where in us that judgment lives about ourselves. Because they are ways that people try to shame us because shame is the tool of social control. Get back in your box, you happy childless woman. Childless women are meant to be unhappy. Why are you okay with it? Get back. <laughs> You know, and I mean, I'm, I'm not meant to, you're not meant to be able to get over childlessness. Do you know what I mean? You're meant to be mm. destroyed by it for the rest of your life. Mm. You know, which is why the narrative of someone like me who's who was destroyed and found a way to rebuild is still not really the one the mainstream wants to hear. You know, mm -hmm. child free women who never wanted children, we can understand. But someone who wanted to be a mum. So for me, I've noticed in my journey, the more work I've done to understand the mechanisms that promote division in my own soul and in society, the easier it's been for me to look across divides and see connection and community. And I think understanding and working across difference is possibly the most important thing we need to be doing in the 21st century, because pretty much every problem we've got in our societies it's because we can't handle difference. Absolutely. And again, I mentioned, you know, the, the social justice uprising of 2020 was very much focused around the pressing and urgent need for us to really actually do the personal work of dismantling white supremacy. <laughs> and what you're describing feels like a very similar process, mm -hmm. actually, because this work does begin with us at really yes. becoming conscious of the internalized unconscious beliefs that we still hold that have been programmed into us by the white supremacist patriarchy, mm. which is at the heart of, of which pronatalism is, is of which pronatalism is a part. Exactly. Yeah. So this is a very in, it begins with a very internal and searching moral inventory, as they say in the 12 step mm. pro program, to actually look at where do these divides live in me? What, where do the prejudices live in me and where do they come from? And how is that actually keeping me oppressed? And how is that preventing me from living my full life as well as others? And this is ultimately the path to, to building and developing empathy. I've heard you describe childlessness as the biggest, I think, I can't remember your exact wording, the biggest failure of empathy. <laughs> or the area it's actually, the Saint, biggest failure actually of Saint, empathy. Saint Brene's words rather oh, than Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I asked her a question at a talk in London um, in 2013. She was giving a talk and I had my hand up right the way at the end, finally got picked for the last question. And I asked her about this, this, this issue between uh, you know, people who have children and people who don't and, 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 and the shaming comments and judgments that get made and how we can how we can cope with them better. And she talked about her research and um, about how she discovered when she went back and looked at her research because she couldn't quite believe what she was seeing from all her interviews. So she went back to check all her coding and it was correct. Everyone who was talking about infertility or childlessness was talking about it in the past tense. So she went back and talked to them again. And they said, no, there's, there's no way I could have talked about it at the time I was going through it because no one would listen to me. It's only now, you know, it's in my past and I processed it. I can talk about it. And she said that in her research, infertility um, and childlessness was the number one area of human empathy failure. Right. I think it has even deeper roots, perhaps, than um, some of the differences we're struggling with now, which I think all have very, very deep roots in human consciousness. Recently, I've been reflecting on our deep, deep tribal past as a species. 
we are not the most dominant species on the planet because we have the biggest claws or we can run the fastest or we're the strongest because of our ability to work together in groups. And what is a human group? It is a family. What is a collection of human groups? It is a tribe. What makes a tribe? People. What makes more people? Babies. I think from our earliest human ancestry, you know, it was so necessary for lots of babies to be born, Mm. you know, because that's how the tribe continued. And, you know, so many babies died and so many women died in childbirth. It was so crucial to the future of the tribe that there would be babies growing up. The woman who couldn't have children was a threat to the tribe. Also, there was an unconscious fear that somehow she would infect the fertile women. She had to be kept away from them. You know, and this still, still comes out in some, some families. Sometimes the childless women are kept away from nephews and nieces in case she kind of gives them an idea. Mm. And that woman then, the woman who couldn't have children, would live at the edge of the tribe. And because she wasn't bringing up children, she would often become the midwife, the healer, the herbalist, the witch. She would be both feared and revered. I think that is still deep in our unconsciousness, this unconscious fear of the woman without children that that exists whether she's childless or child-free. And also women without children are huge agents of social change because we're not involved in that 20 to 30 year project of bringing up children. So all of that kind of creative capacity, that bringing forth of life capacity, goes somewhere else. And actually, it's really disruptive. Massively. I think it's so (laughs) interesting that here in the US, Kamala Harris, Stacey Abrams, and AOC, who are three of the most sort of disruptive, you could say, women in American politics, are all childless, child-free, and all for their different obvious reasons as well. But the fact that three women of color are now held very powerful positions in the U.S. political system, mm-hmm. it just can't, it, it's beyond, beyond coincidence that none of them have children, I think. And mm-hmm. I think there's something very interesting there about, especially when we look at the what's being called the, you know, the 21st century baby bust, like the statistics that just came out from the 2020 mm-hmm. U.S. census show that people, women are, women are not heeding the call to get procreating again because we have this aging population population that's a problem people are opting or foregoing child child motherhood for whatever reasons um, mm. in greater numbers and will continue to do so it just sort of seems like that's that part of our also. evolution actually yeah and that narrative around we must have more babies because of an aging population that actually is um that's ageism mm-hmm. and it also doesn't stack up economically because older people are not necessarily withdrawing money from the state. They are actually contributors. They contribute hugely to, to their families and their communities, both in terms of time and economic activity. It's a different structure in our society, but it's not necessarily a worse one. But pronatalism says everything is solved by growth. So you can really see how it dovetails very nicely into the capitalism argument. We need more. We need more babies. We need more taxpayers. We need more money. We need more things. But actually to have a shrinking population base means actually we have to rethink our way out of this. Yeah. And beginning with distribution of wealth and and resource. Mm. I mean, the fastest way to shrink a population is to make sure that that, that the boys and girls have equal access to education. You know, it is actually the solution for the planet <laughs> is to educate girls and give them other opportunities for their lives than just lots and lots of children, which is still, you know, the, oppor- the only opportunity for many girls growing in the world. And I can't um, do you think- And I'm... You finish. I can't remember now. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say to sort of this... There are, there are seeds here in that in what you were talking about in terms of our kind of tribal, the tribalism of, of us as human beings. There is a, a white supremacist root to this pronatalist argument, too, because I can't help but sense a fear of the what is now the global majority, the black and brown population outnumbering by far the white population. And I think there's something very important to look at and acknowledge within that 
as well. Pronatalism you know? has always been a big part of organized religion. Mm. Um, all organized religions. Mm. It's mm. basically outbreed the others. Right. Exactly. And this is just not the world we live in. It's not the world we live in. It's not the world we want to be living in. Mm. And so I think really, like you say, examining where pronatalism lives in us, just as we're examining where racism might live within us. It's all part of this healing work on behalf of our global family and on behalf of the global community. It's systemic healing work at the deepest levels. You know, my route into this work was through my childlessness. Mm. But I have seen through doing this, this the systemic connections to all other forms of othering and privilege mm. and i'll be honest it blew me open i was very very closed to to these things i think losing something that was so dear to me and also becoming part of a stigmatized othered community as a white middle class able-bodied heterosexual well-educated you know, British woman. And suddenly I was kind of like on the scrap heap as a woman. I had this stigmatized identity. It, it brought me to my knees. But while I was down there, I thought this is something other people have experienced in many other ways, you know, by being, you know, less abled, by being not part of the dominant ethnicity, not the, you know, your sexuality, not being accepted, being a refugee. I start, suddenly started to feel that I, that I felt like I was out in the cold. And when I was out there, I realized how many of us were out in the cold in one way or another. And it broke my heart, but in such an important way. Mm. Because I think it broke open my empathy for, for what it is to be judged for something that is nothing to do with you, color of your skin, mm -hmm. you know, the Absolutely. way you were born, the way you look, where you were born, whatever. And that's been so hugely important in my work, that, that sense of recognizing, like I said, this was my way in to fairness and justice and wanting to make the world a better place. Mm. Um, it was a very, very painful entry ticket. Uh, the price was shockingly high. But now I'm here, I want to, to use that awareness to make a better world for all of the young men and women to come, some of whom could have been my sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. There's a famous, are you familiar with Amma? She's known as the hugging saint. Mm. So one of her quotes is, all of our children are all of our children, which I just love. And it's such a different way to think about mm. our, like I said, our, our sort of like global family, you know? I like that. I have been hugged. <laughs> I've been hugged a couple of times and she and she doesn't have her own biological children either, you know. Um, and yes, for, um, for the unfamiliar, she's known as the hugging saint and you can go and visit her. She travels the world hugging people and you line up for eight hours and you get your hug. <laughs> well, I don't know if she did this to you, but in, in your ear while you're getting the hug is, oh, my daughter, my daughter, my daughter, my daughter. Oh. And it's just, yeah, there's something really powerful about those. I could hugs. do with one of those. <laughs> I, right could now. Do, I think we could probably all do one. I've been wondering, the AMA must have been unpaused by the pandemic too. Oh, um, another conversation that's really bubbling up, and I'm hearing it among my friend group, but also beginning to see it in pockets in the media, is this um, childless for climate. And the whole idea of mm. where for so long ch choosing not to have children has been the selfish choice. Now there's a whole other conversation that flips that and says, and, and AOC has sort of publicly questioned whether it's ethical to bring a child into our yeah. planet currently. Um, and I wonder if that's something you see bubbling up in mm -hmm. your communities too, and what sorts of um, ways you can offer for people to think about that situation mm. as well mm. i i've met i've met a couple of um younger people like this and probably the most profoundly moving experience was i was um i, I was in a workshop um to do with the work that reconnects a few years ago which is very much about really in a way connecting us to our grief for the earth mm. in order to feel part of what's happening and there was a young woman in the workshop, she was about 28 at the time, who was in deep, deep grief because she longed to be a mother. 
and she and her partner had decided that they were not going to have children because of the climate breakdown that they were they're both part of you know quite a lot of climate justice movements she says i can't unknow what i know about what is coming i can't and i can't bring a child into that it's not fair and i think until i met her i i perhaps still had some residual judgment that this was another way of 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 saying i'm child free i don't really want to have kids and i'm going to put this label on it and with her i realized that once again there is going to be a whole spectrum of experiences under that and that for her she was giving up something that she deeply deeply wanted in order because she felt that was the ethical thing to do i don't know in 10 years time if 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 life comes around and we meet again whether you know what what that decision will be but once again that shows how completely ineffective the world world child free is mm. because she's choosing not to have children it's not a free choice mm. you know this is you know and then i've met others who are um a little bit more sort of radically child free and are quite adamant about not having children but it doesn't seem to be connected to a deep personal grief but it is connected to a great deal of social justice now there have been many other times in human sort of recent human history when people have seen the state of the world and thought that you know we shouldn't be bringing children into this world most people have still gone have still gone on and had children you know our generation from the sort of in those born in from the 60s onwards you know we are having many many less children than before but actually when we look back to uh, to earlier generations you know 20% of the female population not having children is actually historically not that unusual it's just the reasons are different now i mean back in victorian times it was quite normal because many women couldn't afford to marry or they worked um in domestic service where if you had a child you had to leave you had to get married you had to leave you know there were there were many less opportunities there were many more spinsters around they were most families had some unmarried childless women as part of the extended family but it's different now and i i'm really curious to see how life will unfold for for those making those decisions and everyone has the right to change their mind mm. you know and from, mm. from what i know of many child free women not all of them is that it's not a one off choice it's often a choice that is revisited and questioned and examined and turned over at many points in life until you reach the end of your fertility. Mm. So, but I think it's an an important conversation. It absolutely is. And if anything, I think it's um I have a friend for example who's in that position and she plans to have a, a child. Mm. And she says, well the way I've squared it with myself is I will do whatever is in my power to do the right thing by the climate, whether it means pivoting in my mm. career to work in you know a, an industry that's aligned mm. with with fighting mm. climate change whether it's impeccable recycling whether it's being vegan like whatever it is she's like i'm just going to tick every box to be doing the right mm. thing by the climate in order to help me justify my choice mm. so yeah a really important and interesting conversation mm. the last thing i'd like to talk to you about i know you have another project which is about being con- a conscious childless elder woman mm. and for me i mean the the vision of I, i the vision of myself sort of alone childless no family to help let alone support me but you know offer me comfort to be there to hold my hand at the end i mean that that vision that mm-hmm. specter is the one thing that has ever sort of brought me to a i should probably do this you know mm-hmm. um and so this is yes there is an aging population we do need to find radically new ways to care for our elders mm. the pandemic again has shown shown mm. a massive light on how poor our elder care systems currently are so i'd love to hear a bit about your conscious mm. elder woman project um from i heard you talk about it on a podcast of my i just really lit up and just thought yes i want to be involved in this <laughs> sign me up yeah. i'm ready <laughs> um so please tell tell us yes. a bit more about that <laughs> Thank you. And I'm calling it conscious childless elder women at the moment because that's my kind of community is mm. is childless women. But I actually feel as we get older, particularly if we've done the kind of the integration work, uh 
whether you have chosen or not to have children, I think becomes less of an issue as we get much older. We find, I think women, you know, we find ourselves as, as much more of part of a sisterhood as we get older. And I also notice reading the autobiographies and the articles of women who at earlier stages in their life were grieving their childlessness. Often in their later writings, they look back on it and f and they, they reinterpret it as much more to do with choice and freedom. So like I get that spectrum again. Mm. But I think the issue is around with my Conscious Childless Elder Women project is there's this one valorized identity for older women in our culture, and that is grandmother. If you're not a grandmother, there is no other single word in the English language that is a compliment. Every other word is an insult. So I'm really curious about that because to me, if someone wants to call me a witch, I'm going to say magical and powerful. I'll take it. You know, <laughs> so I really want to reclaim a lot of these words. I use the word I call myself hashtag apprentice crone. I love it. And it's really interesting to say, oh, but you're not old and you don't look old. I said, I know, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll be 60 in a few years time. I said, so I, then I might just start to be able to call myself, you know, beginning of a crone. I've always looked younger than my age. You know, that's just that's the face. You know, and but to me, the the dark night of the soul that I've been through to kind of come to terms with my childlessness, in a way, has matured me. And has I have faced my mortality. I have faced my death. I am the end of my line. There is something profoundly can be profoundly maturing about facing that, and I found that it makes me very curious about the deep structural questions of life. And I love to be with other women who are talking about that. And when I am, the wisdom, the wit, the bawdiness, the humor of kind of older women who are awake is, and who aren't banging on about being grandmothers, because there can be real grandmother bores as well, is fascinating and profound. So although there is work to be done around the structural issues to do with supporting each other as we age, if we don't have biological children to help us with that, I'm also deeply interested in what is an elder? Mm. What is the role of an elder? How do we support each other to move into that? Because it's not about chronological aging. It's about spiritual and emotional and psychological maturity. And not everyone who gets old, you know, does those things mm. and i'm i'm fascinated to know what would it take to help more people get that how do i connect us all together because that seems to be something i naturally do and something you naturally do i always think there must be more of us let's get them all together <laughs> just i don't want to be invited but i want to get them all together <laughs> and um and then with to the structural piece about the actual support I'm really interested within Gateway Women, you know, after the pandemic, when we can start to sort of meet in person again, we have Gateway Gatherings, which are these local social gatherings of childless women around the world. And I would love to start to see in our local communities, starting to build these intergenerational contacts through Gateway Women so that as I move into my 60s, you know, I'm mentoring a group of women who are in their 40s in my local area. And then as they move into their 60s and my, I move into my 80s, I've got like a pool of younger women around me who, you know, will be there because actually a lot of the tasks and support we need with aging and aging in place are not intimate care. There's someone to fix our skybox. Mm. There's someone to drive us to an appointment. There's someone to help us when a service that we, we've used to goes completely digital. You know, my partner's 90-year-old mum lives with us. And I've really, I've learned so much from that experience because I really see the benefits, the glorious benefits of intergenerational living, what it's like to, you know, to be with someone so different who's had such a different life to me. But I've also seen, you know, she's in amazing health. You know, we tease her, she's got the best health in the household. Is, is that actually what's important for her is helping, just helping her with things that have changed. And that she doesn't need a lot of help. But if you haven't got anyone around, you know, if, if Facebook stopped working because it needs updating and you don't know which button to press and things like that, um, it doesn't sound like much. But if that then cuts you off from all your friends and you don't have a grandchild or a child to ask, I don't, I've, I've tried to fix it. I seem to have made it worse. 
I mean, you and I know that the tasks of modern living, you know, are extensive. I mean, I, I struggle to keep up with them. You know, the dental appointments, the medical appointments, the tax returns, the this, the that, the other. There's a lot to stay on top of. And as you get older, it's great to have a few people around you who can help you with that. So as well as it being about a, a deep, a, a deeply held desire, almost to increase the presence of wisdom, of women, older women's wisdom in the world, which it needs desperately. There's the other side of it, which is how can we, how can we help each other? You know, and mm. I think whether we're childless or child free, and perhaps even if we have children, I think to have those caring networks in our local community where we've spent time investing in those relationships so we trust them, I think they're going to be key. Once again, it's going to be about staying local. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, can, I absolutely love this vision because it's almost like for every for every time my mind takes me to that lonely threadbare apartment with my cat sort of like, <laughs> I don't know, scratching everything up. And um, I have, it's it sort of then immediately morphs into this vision of me living on some sort of a commune with my other no no mo friends and you know who whatever kind of young people we've been mentoring or who've been connected to our work over the years sort of dropping in and checking in on us and yeah. that's just sort of intuitively where my mind has gone and I just love the fact that you're actually doing the work of starting to create those communities I think they're going to be just invaluable for us in the future and what you said as well about older nomos I'm liking that now I'm using yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Older nomos, I think there is, and it's part, it, it sort of dovetails with what you were talking about, the grieving process being a process of becoming sort of almost more us in a way. Mm. For people, it's, it's, it's a maturing, pro grieving is a maturing process also. The grieving yes. of what we haven't been able to have, being able to be with loss, being able to be with our disenfranchisement mm -hmm. is a very maturing process and it creates such texture to a person's mm. character and experience and such deep worlds of empathy. I love being in those conversations too. And I think not saying that women who are mums can't also have that level of personal development, but I think this, um, what was the word you used? Deviant, this deviant path. Um, it really, it, it, and I, I've experienced it with sober curious too, being a, being the, the, the odd non-drinker out. It really kind of, you're invited into such a deeper level of self-inquiry and self-awareness, um, which then kind of like is projected out into the world around you as well. So mm -hmm. yes, like similarly, very excited, very excited to call myself crone. It's funny. I had the idea, or I knew I wanted to write this book. I actually found washed up on a beach. I was on holiday in Puerto Rico. And remember those? <laughs> I know. Yeah, it was a good couple of years ago. Um, and a Gail Sheehy's book, um, the, the Silent Passage, mm. and it was a book about menopause. And it was written in the 90s, but she was mm. presenting menopause as this actual, really exciting, transformative time in a woman's life. Mm. And it really was, I think I was 43 at the time, and it really helped me be like, Yes, no regrets, no regrets. I'm mm. excited for menopause. I'm excited mm. for this new hormonal cocktail and what that might open up and awaken in me. And it was such a revelatory moment. So yeah, hail to, hail to the crones. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm really excited this, to see how that all runs out. I host out. These, um, these quarterly uh, groups on Zoom. Um, we've started, call, we call ourselves the Nomo Crones. And we meet quarterly on the on the solstices and equinoxes, like good witches. <laughs> and uh, they're called the Wisdom Circles, uh, Fireside Wisdom. That's what we've called them. And it's a group of older, childless women in their fifties, sixties, and seventies. And we meet for a, a public, you know, a public chat. They are so so popular because mm. women are younger and older. Women without children are so hungry for these conversations because we are older women and older childless women and actually all older women, we are so missing from the culture and the conversations that we have that are not about men, that are not about babies, that are not about Botox, that are actually just about living, you know, are, they're so juicy. Um, so, you know, any of your listeners or you, you know, want to tune into that, just go to my website and click on childless elder women um, and you'll see when the next one's coming up. All are welcome. 
Wonderful. I'll mm. I'll be there. I hope I'm old enough. <laughs> <laughs> Any age is welcome. Because if you want to sit at the feet of your elders, you don't have to be an elder. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would yes. I'll be there. Um, Jody, this has been absolutely fantastic. You're such a well of wisdom and empathy and <laughs> just, yeah, you're, you've created an amazing, amazing thing with your community. The website is gatewaywomen.com. Um, where else can people find you? I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Gateway Women. Um, love to see you there. Wonderful. Thanks again. Thank you. That was my conversation with Jodie Day, who is the founder of Gateway Women. You can visit www.gateway-women.com to learn more about Jodie's various events and initiatives and check out her book, Living the Life Unexpected. You can also pre-order my book, Women Without Kids, The Revolutionary Rise of an Unsung Sisterhood. Now, I'll include all the links in the show notes. This podcast features original music and is edited by alloaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com. <laughs>